0: You know, when I got into that space a little bit more, you know, almost a decade or so ago, the team I was working with at the time, we were really pushing this idea of, you know, venue anchor, mixed use, urban developments. The problem that we saw at the time, and we were a little ahead of the curve, I think, is that these stadiums were continuing to go up in cost. Really all started kind of by Barry Jones and Cowboys Stadium, right? Which was the first real billion dollar plus stadium. But once you get one of those, you know, everyone's got to outdo the next one. The problem with a venue like that is, you know, you're only utilizing it it at most 40 event nights a year, right? So you have this huge mammoth building that's sitting there, not necessarily being utilized.
1: Welcome to XN State. Where's the greatest opportunity in real estate today? That's what I need to know. We'll hear from industry leaders with boots in the ground and skin in the game. Who's winning? How are they winning? Stick around and we'll find out right here on XN State. Welcome back to another episode of XN State. This is your host, JCQ. This week, we host RCL Co's Director of Business Development, Joshua Boren, to discuss digital marketing in real estate, as well as how he and his company see the current real estate landscape. Joshua's extensive real estate background includes working at world renowned stadium architecture firm. Populous, an experience that sparked a fascination for the intersection of sports and real estate, which we dive into in today's episode. Today, Joshua Bourne is recognized industry-wide for his digital marketing skills and for the work he does to bring business to his company through social media and other digital tools that our industry has generally been slow to adopt. We also touch on new products that have hit the real estate scene recently and that are garnering attention quickly, such as single-family rentals and production studios. Without further ado, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for tuning in to XM State. Here is today's guest, Joshua Boren. Josh, good afternoon. How are you? It's great to have you here on the show.
0: Appreciate you having me, Jorge. It's great to see you. Great to talk with you. And thanks for uh, giving me a platform and an audience to share with your viewers and listeners.
1: Thank you very much for being here. So how are things in LA right now?
0: Well, uh, following the rules as best I can and as a business development director certainly makes my life a little bit harder, but staying safe and healthy and wearing my mask and doing the best I can, but uh, business has picked up. You know, it's been, uh, we're now in what, it's August, so it's been uh, a handful of months since COVID sort of set in and sort of the ups and downs, and I think we've seen some business come back on the real estate front. So generally, I'll say I'm doing well and can't complain with everyone being healthy.
1: Good, good. Glad to hear. And, and I would like to touch a little bit in more detail into some of the things that you just mentioned have impacted the market and how you have seen things shift in the last few months, but we'll touch a little bit on, on that later on. First, okay. why don't we begin, Josh, by hearing a little bit about your track record, what you've done, your career, where you've been, and a little bit about what you're doing now as well.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. I think that, that'll give some good context as to why, uh, why my brain's worth picking later on, right? Exactly. So, My name is Josh Bourne. As you obviously know, I'm now the Director of Business Development for RCLCO. We are a real estate consulting firm, nationally focused, but we do quite a bit of international work as well. That really means that we operate in three areas, market research and real estate economics, management consulting and strategic planning, and uh, institutional investment advisory work uh, across the board for real estate organizations and companies. I spend a lot of time around Different uh, folks in sectors and geographies in the real estate world. My background is a bit circuitous as well. So I think I've got a nice sort of, you know, well rounded perspective. Originally from Michigan, still a diehard Detroit fan for all sports and and things. I I wear an old English D on my hat for the Tigers. I I drive an American car still, an SUV, and wear a Shinola watch. So I'm very, very much very loyal. Yeah, despite being in LA now uh, over 13 plus years. I, uh, I went to Wharton for undergrad, focusing on real estate and entrepreneurship. So kind of knew early on I wanted to be in real estate. and it'd always sort of been a little bit of more of that hustler business mentality early on, whether it was beanie babies or you know wrestling action figures or whatever it was in the neighborhood trying to make a buck with my friends. But went to Wharton and coming out of Wharton funny enough, decided to take a role doing market analysis and real estate consulting work with the company I'm with now RC Alco. I haven't been with them since then came back, but I spent about a year and a half learning sort of the foundation of how to analyze real estate deals, what to look at. And um, this was 07, 08, So not necessarily the best time to be trying to find a, a long-term career in real estate. I spent about a year and a half there doing that type of work before I got lucky and had met a very well-known architect in the sports and entertainment sector. So pretty, pretty small niche, but as a a diehard sports fan growing up and a guy who loved real estate and didn't necessarily know anything about architecture, as he would remind me, I think the initial quote was, and part of my French was, we don't know shit about architecture, but let's give it a month and we'll see how being a business development manager works. So he brought me on board and gave me kind of a test run to see how the sales and marketing and kind of customer relationship side of the business might work. And essentially, my focus was on going out and finding... Team owners or developers or whomever it may be that were looking at developing stadiums, arenas, and other types of large-scale entertainment projects, and then selling professional services and particular design services to that group. So I spent about eight years or so doing that. About four and a half years ago, decided I wanted to kind of get back to my roots and really expand my horizons back into real estate a bit deeper and you know, decided to pivot and really. Jump back into the the kind of real estate development and real estate investment world. RCLCO happened at that time to be looking. They were at their 50th year, the sort of 40th, 49th year, and about to hit their 50th anniversary. And we're looking to bring on a full time business development manager for the first time. I think the business had changed, where a lot of their you know reputation, which is great, and and our client base has been built on sort of word of mouth and referral based business, but as clients are getting older and that next generation's coming up, how do we get in front of them? How do we ensure the name sort of lives on and continue to drive business? And, you know, as you'll see as a theme in this conversation with all things I do around networking, business development, kind of customer outreach, I actually kind of ran into someone at a, at a function on a beach on a Friday night. So I was at at a Shabbat on the beach of all things and ran into someone who was a managing director there. And, you know, six months later had a, full-time job as director of business development with RC Elko, my second stint back with the firm. So been four and a half years with them now, or a little bit over that, and, you know, responsible for kind of driving new business and helping our existing clients understand the array of our services.
1: Wow. Very interesting journey there, Josh. Thank you very much for sharing. So as director of, or manager of business relations, how does your job look like and how has it changed in the past few months?
0: Yeah, it's, it's definitely changed. Recently, you know, most of my abilities and what I focus on is kind of driving leads or opportunities through relationships. And so I spend a lot of my time, almost all of my time out taking meetings, whether it be coffee, lunch, attending networking events, a lot of event marketing around conferences. The real estate industry is certainly a conference-heavy industry, but for somebody like me who's service-oriented, it's a great way to meet new people and also to meet people while knowing other people there and kind of getting that vote of confidence all at once, right? And that's something I can touch on that doesn't exist right now for me, that's a little bit more difficult. But my business has always been around kind of being out there and getting in front of people, whether it's in Los Angeles, and certainly I spend a lot of time kind of in the local market throughout Southern California, uh, where I feel like I can get deep roots and, and build those relationships, but also a lot of internet, sorry, just a lot of national travel to those conferences and with other key clients or key targets and things like that. That's obviously all been grounded. So as you can imagine, most of what I'm doing has been pivoted towards, you know, Zoom meetings, a lot of phone calls, and certainly a heavier presence involving social media and even things like this. A lot more podcasts, webinars, digital presence, really trying to beef up our firm presence, but as well as kind of a individual personalities around myself and our managing directors within the firm as we try to sort new business, new business, and you know, find ways to kind of get our name out there when it's not physically on the ground, like we're able
1: to. Yeah, because a a big part of your job is digital marketing, right? And that's even before COVID, but I'm sure now your role has probably shifted more towards the digital marketing side, more than the in-person going to conferences. And I'm also a big fan of doing business development myself and going to conferences and trying to connect with people. Just because that's how we met, and actually virtually, by the way, right Um, on a Zoom
0: on a Zoom uh, happy hour, quote unquote, right at the end conference, yeah,
1: which I think was a great event. Um, I met you, and I met many other very interesting people. I haven't seen a lot of that. I mean, that was a great event, but other than that, I mean, I've seen some events shift from a conference model, in person conference, to. A webinar model. But I mean, honestly, I, I've signed up for a few that I just didn't even watch. But what I liked about that one was that it was a happy hour. So, I mean, you had to speak, you had to meet people. I mean, it, the purpose was to connect with other people and shout out to Carmo Companies. Those were the ones who put it together and they put some good events. I think they've in particular done a good job at shifting to more of a virtual world.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think some of those smaller breakout groups are really where I find value in some of this online stuff. I mean, to your point, early on, there was a lot of content. And I think what happened is there became a bit of sort of like webinar fatigue, I'll call it, or, or Zoom overload. I mean, our firm itself, we were doing weekly COVID webinars and updates that I was moderating. I think I did 12 straight weeks. I'm impressed by your mm-hmm. podcast and hosting skills. It's a lot of work. You have to prep, get ready, understand your guests know what the topics are, right? I mean, it's not just, hey, let me hop on hop on a mic. And we did that for 12 straight weeks while this was kind of all very early on happening and the information was still very fluid and really changing even more day-to-day, let alone weekly, right? And then we kind of pulled back instead. Said, said, okay, let's, you know, we did that as a way to stay relevant and kind of pivot very quickly and make sure that we were using digital in a way and things were kind of you know, halted to, to stay run of things. I called that first month or two of COVID operational paralysis. Everyone's business was just focused on, you know, halting and figuring out how to get back to running. And then things kind of went back to normal. But yeah, it's been a heavier, heavier focus on, on the digital side entirely because then we, we decided once a week is too much. Let's take a step back. Let's reevaluate. We're going to do once a month now. And once a month seemed to be a good fit. And we're even the idea of even finding windows of uh, consistency, like we're doing every Friday, once a month, at that 9.15 p.m. Pacific time window, we found that that consistency helps build an audience, too. So there's some things we've learned, but, yeah, I think it's tough with digital. And then prior to that, you know, digital and, and physical to me always have to live hand in hand. I did use digital very heavily, digital marketing going into this. I think there's been some great stories. We talked about some other podcasts where, you know, I've sold Stadium even on, you know, through Twitter. Well, that's like the initial contact, right? And, and certainly it builds up over time, multiple touch points building of a rapport and relationship. And ultimately a lot of that is done in person. So that piece is missing a little bit right now, which means I feel feel like I'm doing more sourcing and more kind of planting of seeds. And my hope is that those slowly grow, I can stay in front of them, but you know I'm not as heavily watering and maintaining and trimming and pruning as I normally would be if I could do kind of the in-person piece right now as well. So I'm hoping these are kind of slower growing plants in terms of leads that I can come back to and continue to a harvest over time as we figure out, you know, when a vaccines can come out and when we can get back on a plane and when we have conferences again and all those things.
1: That's very true. There's a very important component that can be done digital, but then there's a certain piece, like more towards the closing to actually having uh, like the business be created. A lot of times that there's, it, there needs to be that in person, or at least it helps a lot in most cases.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's nothing like, you know, having a drink or breaking bread or actually being physically with somebody to even just kind of have that connection that you can always draw on. I mean, you know, and we'll probably get into this a little bit in our notes leading up to this. You, One of the things you mentioned is in thinking about digital marketing real estate, which I agree with, is a bit of a slower adopting industry, right? We're And even on things like social, where I've gotten very involved over the last couple of months and built up a nice little audience and a great kind of following, that's also becoming an interesting wealth of knowledge for me, but also a source of leads. You don't see a lot of kind of our end end clients at the end of the day, right? You're not seeing individual developers or investors. Maybe you see the companies, but those are normally run by somebody's social media or maybe leasing and sales account, not necessarily the right group. And so I think there is a way of saying, hey, how do you use this to get to the right person or how do you build upon that? Because we are slow to adopt a little bit. And so what that means is that you're not necessarily, at least right now, going to get immediacy out of out of how you and I probably as a younger generation would want.
1: Yeah, that, I think that is very true. And that's something that to me is an opportunity just because the industry has been very slow to adopt digital marketing. Well, why don't we begin, Josh? What is digital marketing? Just because in real estate, that's a term that we don't even hear often.
0: Yeah. And I think every role in real estate is a little different, right? I mean, myself, I'm playing the role of business development for a, a service industry. I work with an incredible team of very smart, call them the best minds in real estate around thought leadership, research, market knowledge, and we are constantly producing really, really interesting intellectual property, white papers, publications. That is, for me, a digital marketing dream, right? I, I mean, one of the things that we've done over the last four plus years myself, and I've, I have have an incredible marketing team, a great director of marketing, and we've kind of built that up, is almost, I think, you know, three or four X kind of the size of our, our outreach, our database, our client, you know, our kind of Group that's getting this really useful information. So it's not just that we're sending a note and being, you know, hey, it's just another piece of digital communication for no reason. It's this is actually adding value. This is a deep thought out piece. This is something that others are paying for typically that we're using as a way for guys like myself to go out and do digital marketing, right? Which ultimately is virtual sales generation. So we use it a lot of different ways, but for me, it's about connecting dots and ultimately meeting people and trying to convert those people into a win-win relationship. We always want to be a long-term resource.
1: One of the areas where I could see the big opportunity for digital marketing and real estate is in raising capital. Would you agree with that? We've been seeing it for a few years. But yeah. again, I think the industry has also been pretty slow to adopt that.
0: Well, it's funny. I think you're right. We've seen a few things already over the years, and even that industry is still very, I think, early, which is the idea of kind of crowdfunding, right? And you're seeing a number of digital crowdfunding platforms, which essentially are sponsors being able to put their investment opportunities on an exchange and offer it to investors in smaller slices that maybe previously wouldn't have had access to that. There's a whole handful of those groups. I'm sure you're familiar with some of them. Some of those have even pivoted over the years. I think it's a good example of that. That's still a very, I think, infantile industry, but has a lot of room for growth, especially as today's world talk about, you know, providing access to more people and the ability to invest in more things and more, you know, more, you know, kind of equalness. I think the digital realm does a little bit of that or helps that, you know, a little bit for sure. So that's certainly a big piece of, of where I think things are going.
1: One part is the crowdfunding, but the other part is using, for example social media to yeah, advertise yeah. yeah to I mean I don't see a lot of a lot of that I've seen a little a little bit more recently I mean using uh, Instagram and Twitter, but most real estate companies and development companies they don't really use these tools for digital marketing there's we're still very traditional when it comes to marketing we we do. Mostly word of mouth, really. I mean, that's the how most business is done in real estate. But when you when I see the influence that social media has in some yeah. certain accounts in particular, um, I was just
0: thinking the same thing. There's a few that I know. One in self storage that's kind of a, built his own story. You know, kind of ground up in terms of where he came from. There's a couple in LA I know that focus on kind of their multifamily investment strategy in particular. But I know that both of those two accounts I'm thinking of and a few others have recently talked about their successful ability to create new LPs and raise capital from the connections they've made on Twitter in particular. I think LinkedIn as well. To me, those are the two on the social media perspective for real estate that I've found to be most valuable so far. I think it's about creating a kind of a personality and a story around yourself first, and then maybe the investment opportunity second, to be honest. I don't necessarily think the guys that are investing on the LP level are saying, hey, I'm looking at each individual deal with these guys. As that's much, very true. Like, they've been very successful. You can see they're educating other people. They're putting themselves out there. They're giving back. There's And at the end of the day, I think, by the way, you're always investing in sponsors, right? And the at end the, the end
1: level, of the day, you're always right. investing in sponsors. Even, right. I mean, at any level, at any level, I mean, yep. even if you're a small or large investor, I mean, when we evaluate a deal, that's the most important factor of all is, who am I investing in? And I mean, you see a lot of people building businesses of different kinds in social media and having a lot of success and having, if they have a million followers or 500,000 followers, then those become their clients and they're pretty much yep. going to buy anything that you sell they're to monetizing. Your, exactly. Yeah. And in real estate, since it's the decision of should I invest or not with you can sometimes be a lot based on trust and whether I trust you rather than the asset or the opportunity itself than for somebody who can, I mean, create that reputation for themselves. And as you mentioned, that story around who they are and their deals. At the end of the day, you can sell any deal. I mean, if if you know how to sell it right. And
0: I actually think it goes even deeper than that. There's something unique about social media and I'll even narrow it further and say Twitter in particular, where whether it's the following or the engagement, there sort of becomes this familial feel. Whereas if you actually know this person, often You know, you might follow people for years reading their insights and connecting and getting to know them to the point that you feel intimately like you're a friend of theirs, or you know them better than some of the own people. When I was back in the stadium business, I sometimes, and I used Twitter very early on, I mean, 2009-ish, 2010, when it kind of launched to get my name out there in that smaller space, to your point about how do you kind of build a brand, to the point where like I would walk into uh, a Venues Now or whatever that was, Venues Today conference at the time, which was a big you know, industry venue kind of, and, and I'd go to check in at the registration table, and the one would be like, I know you, you're, you know, at Joshua A. Boren. And I'm like, oh, oh we met? She's like, no, but I've been following you on Twitter. You share all this information about stadiums and arenas. I feel like I know you. I think that happens, and in real estate in particular, especially in today's world and what's happening and this kind of, you know, push for younger generation to side hustle and think about income differently and learn financial literacy. These guys are giving people, again, sort of access and options. And I think, I think you're seeing a lot of success in, in, with people looking at LP investing through Twitter connections. I mean, I know a couple of the folks, probably ones you and I are talking about, I've reached out and just said, hey, I'm interested. You know, this is an asset class I haven't looked at before. And I'd love to see how you're underwriting deals and what it looks like. And, it, you know, and you're basing that entirely off their Twitter persona, right? Because I've never mm-hmm. met that. It, but it's incredible.
1: I actually, I listened to a podcast you did a, a few, I mean, I listened to it a, a few months ago and I reached out to you on Twitter and asked for accounts to follow. And you gave me a list of about 10 or so real estate accounts and I've been following them for a few months. And my whole Twitter experience has really changed after that. Now it's all, all real estate, whereas before, I didn't follow anybody in, in real estate and and I learned a lot and I and I see people, I mean, building a brand, and I'm sure they're able to raise capital through there just because yeah. of what you mentioned. You feel that you know the person in which makes it a lot easier to put money with them.
0: Yeah, I, I find Twitter to be incredible from that perspective. And I've been a long-term proponent of Twitter. I mean, as I mentioned, I, mean, I started using it in 2008, 2009, and really used it to try to do what they're doing now in real estate, but kind of in a different sector. I was a little younger and had more time. What I find incredible is you know, to me, just even managing, going through it and taking in a lot of their insights, but also trying to stay in touch and watching how frequently a lot of these users are on there. It seems like that's a full-time job. And I'm always, i, I at the same time thinking, man, like it's incredible. You're playing a GP role. You have a very successful business. You're, you're sharing all sorts of wisdom and deal bits. And yet you're tweeting every 22 minutes for 12 straight hours. You know, it's a, uh, it's impressive what people are kind of capable of these days. I feel like our bandwidth is all expanded. At the same time, we're all very uh pulled in a lot of directions. It's kind of the too much information sometimes can be paralyzing as well, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think know. the the key there is when somebody's able to tweet that much it, it's because it becomes just natural to them because yes, they're they're sort of documenting what they're doing rather than trying to create content on purpose. They're just like what they're putting their life and what they're seeing on the web. And that also helps their content be very Genuine. Uh, say authentic. authentic
0: yeah. The word. Yeah, exactly. And I like, that kind of ties into that idea of digital marketing as well. And I think there's a fine line between digital marketing and kind of digital business development as well. To my point earlier, I don't want to just blast a bunch of e-marketing pieces out to all the number of folks in our database. Rather, I want to give them good content, make it worthwhile, right? I mean, it has to be valuable digital connection, valuable digital marketing still. Otherwise, it gets to a point where, I mean you know, you probably have more emails coming in than you used to get junk mail to your actual mail, right? I mean, somehow you have to cut through that clutter. And that's where digital marketing has been really helpful to me with using that kind of thought, you know, thought leadership, really good publications, also in terms of digital tools. I mean, almost all of my, you know, kind of resources and support now when I actually do get a lead and get kind of deeper into that, you know, effort are all PDF that are sent electronically. I mean, it's very rare to do, I feel like anything kind of physically anymore, at least in terms of the, you know, the true sales piece now, which is a big shift, even from a few years ago too. And especially when I used to work in an architectural firm and still, that's kind of cool. we walk in with models and whatnot, but you know, it's all about the digital world we live in now. And how do you stay top of mind in front of people as frequently as possible in a, in a valuable way without being a
1: bother? Exactly. And I think that was something that, that I wanted to mention a lot of these people that I'm following, I'm sometimes even surprised by the content that they share. Like you'd think that it's like information, like they may the be give, given away too much. But yeah. at the end of the day, that's I mean that's how they are adding value to other people. And I think marketing has shifted, I mean, or at least I've seen it shift in I mean the, the time I've been in, in the industry to where now it's more about like actually adding value. And that's, yeah. that's what works. That's the only thing that works now. Like, I mean, if, I, if you get any other kind of advertising, it's not going to work. But like, for example, you with RCL you're not sending emails yeah. about, hey, like if, I mean, offering your services, you're give, make, giving out right. webinars that actually help me so where does the, I'm very interested by the intersection of real estate and sports, because that's not something that you hear about a lot. And it's two things that I'm really passionate about. So how does that come about in your world?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like it was kind of a dream job, like I told you. And it is such a very nuanced or kind of niche sector in particular. But I think what's unique is that it's growing a ton. And, you know, when I got into that space a little bit more, you know, almost a decade or so ago, the team I was working with at the time, we really, or the, the, design team, we were really pushing this idea of, you know, venue anchor, mixed use, urban developments. The problem that we saw at the time, and we were a little ahead of the curve, I think, is that these stadiums were continuing to go up in cost, really all started kind of by Barry Jones and Cowboy Stadium, right, which was the first real billion dollar plus stadium. But once you get one of those, you know, everyone's got to outdo the next one. And The problem with a venue like that is, you know, you're only utilizing it, it at most 40 event nights a year. Right, so you have this huge mammoth building that's sitting there, not necessarily being utilized. And so, how do you translate that into, you know, one, a smaller, more multi-purpose venue that could be more of an anchor and look at it more like a retail play and view that team as an anchor for the venue that can then drive more revenue from the real estate surrounding it? I think, you know, the, the kind of rising costs of the venues. Plus, in the last decade, plus kind of the growth of what I'd call, you know, uh, appreciation around franchise values, right? And, you know, these teams are all selling for so much now. You know, if you're buying a team for $2 billion, you better figure out a way to monetize it beyond just owning it as it is. And a lot of that means either bringing in a new building and creating new revenue streams, owning the real estate around either your existing building or a new building, and then, of course, owning the television rights, right? I used to joke I always wanted to own a sports team. Realistically, you still would it from an appreciation perspective, but really you want to own the real estate and the, and the television rights associated with the sports team, right? And so over the last decade or so, there has been this growth around this intersection of kind of entertainment, sports, and real estate. A lot of it being the continued trend of urbanization and push towards cities. Uh, Austin's an interesting example. I believe you guys are building a soccer stadium right now, kind of in a relatively urban location, right? That's got some Development, some retail around it, and it's going to be near, I think, UT's campus, and you know, kind of play into that, you know, fit nicely in kind of an urban location. But you're seeing more and more of that, and you've seen a lot of that type of success. And you know, the idea of being, hey, if, you know, why wouldn't we want to take advantage of the fact that there's there can be a mixed use residential and retail and office that one allows us to kind of control our brand even outside of the stadium and the bowl, and then also allows us to take advantage of these other revenue streams. So been really interesting to watch the space. The Oakland A's, for instance, hired a chief real estate officer, which is really unique. Somebody who came out of our sector and is managing their kind of very large, you know, ballpark and mixed use development project. I think you'll see more and more of that even as teams look to, again, kind of control the land, control the development opportunities and get more involved with what's out there from that, you know, real estate perspective. So for a guy like you and I, I don't know. That's sort of to your point. I'm very passionate about that space. There's not a ton of projects, right? I mean, there's only so many professional teams out there in so many cities. What I'm really excited about from a real estate perspective is I think you're going to see a ton of secondary and tertiary type markets building six to 10,000 seat venues and being host to USL. I really think soccer is going to have a big push in this country going forward to drive similar to the way minor league baseball did, kind of these. You know, these other cities that don't have the biggest teams, but can put this really kind of core anchor venue in a downtown location and create a really a, create a place. Right. And create that kind of here and now and live work, play that everybody's looking for in terms of both you know, suburban urbanization and mixed use.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting point you make of small stadiums. I mean, if you're able to add a mixed use component and find a way to make it usable year round. I mean, it seems to be very aligned with what people are looking for today, which is something to do and sports. I mean, my wife and I, we were living in in Houston up to a few weeks ago and for uh, during a lot of weekends, just for lack of something else to do and to go out to, we ended up going to either Astros games or Rockets games. And I think that people really are looking for that kind of, of opportunity. And I think it makes a lot of sense what you're mentioning about teams wanting to get in on the, on the real estate business. I mean, if, if they're owning a franchise, and, and again, to your point, how franchises have evolved and become more important in the last few decades, um, it makes it, the shift that you're mentioning towards incorporating the team and the real estate into more of a lifestyle way, like with retail and with hotels and apartments that I think, I think it's, it's great for the real estate and sports intersection.
0: Yeah. And it's actually really cool to kind of see it the other way too. Right. I mean, it's always unfortunate if a team leaves a city or if a venue gets abandoned, but how do you repurpose or how do you redevelop, you know, what it could be around it still. And then turn that into something else like where Arsenal play in London, Highbury, their old stadium is now an apartment complex. And me, you know, the middle where the pitch used to be is actually a gardens and a grounds, right? And it's amazing to see the transition that you can do is something unique and still kind of pay heritage. and You know, so it can go both ways. And I think if you're a, you know, the bright designer, developer, or investor can see that kind of future and take advantage of it. And the teams are now recognizing that as well. Oakland, again, similar example, you know, they're looking at developing this ballpark facility, but they also have the old plot of land where they used to play where the Coliseum was. And they're looking to develop that once. To get rid of the Coliseum into just a traditional mixed use land play, right? As opposed to a venue anchored one. So, another example of a team taking on maybe not even a sports anchored project. There's quite a bit of those, I'd say those USL teams and those six to 10,000 seat anchored venues that, to your point about event nights, you know, if you can get 150, 180, 200 event nights at a smaller arena like that, whether it's sports or even just concerts, right? You and your wife, I'm sure, would love to be going to concerts frequently, especially in this era of, you know, I think retail, really repositioning to focus on entertainment, food and beverage, and kind of the experience piece, this gives you that experience in a downtown core or lets you kind of place or anchor a downtown core. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. A product, Josh, that I've heard you talk about and and seen you tweet about as well, and that I want to have the opportunity to ask you about now that I have you here, because it's something that I've heard a, a lot Recently, and I just keep hearing about it every week, and I'm still uh, it's be. <laughs> the single family built for rent.
0: Yeah, of course, right? Purpose built rentals, single family built for rent, ETR, whatever you how want long, to call.
1: It. How long have you been hearing about that product? Because I only heard about it for maybe two months. Yeah. So
0: funny enough, I think one of the things COVID has certainly done in the real estate industry, as well as just I think across the board in the way we live, is I think it's accelerated a lot of certain trends that were already happening. And so we've actually had a fair amount of work over the last six months or a year kind of prior to COVID of groups evaluating single family built to rent this, this product, which there's a couple different versions of that as well. There's kind of your traditional single family rental, you know, think your, your cottage home that, you know, you're actually renting. And then there's more of the horizontal multifamily approach, which is kind of more of the duplex or kind of apartment living, but with a yard and you know, your own private entrance and gives you a bit more space, less density, right? So we've worked, RCLCO has been doing a fair bit of work, actually, with quite a few groups looking at both, both on the strategic side, helping them think about geographic markets to expand to. And so we've really seen prior to COVID a fair amount of that, you know, in the kind of Phoenix metro region, Texas, certainly the Carolinas, Florida, a little bit. So, you know, the Southeast, and in the last three, four, let's call it five months, I don't know how long since COVID started now, we've seen a huge influx, though, of increase around that product type and requests to look at market studies. And where I think the change is, is that it's no longer just kind of the landowners, land developers looking at it, but now you have home builders looking at it as well. You have, you know, master plan communities allowing it for the first time. You know, you have investors thinking it's interesting just across the board as, as these trends change. So, We've seen a lot more interest and a lot of questions about it, and we joke internally, kind of a running gag: Is this going to be the first year in the firm's history we might actually have more single-family build-to-rent market studies than traditional multifamily market studies?
1: So that's amazing. uh,
0: Yeah, it's really kind of you know more anecdotal, of course, but we do think it's very busy. And again, even the traditional multifamily developers are starting to ask us questions about evaluating that. Right. So it's it's kind of everybody now over the last few months getting excited about it. I think in a place like Southern California, it's difficult to make work with the land prices where they're at, which is why you're not seeing a lot of them here, but we're we're getting questions about a lot of other metros that maybe we weren't looking at before.
1: I think that it, a lot of it is um, everybody is trying to f- scramble to find the like the next big thing. Everybody's tired of building traditional multifamily and people are trying to figure out what's next.
0: Yeah, I think there's you know some shifts in kind of the demographics as well. Like some of these later in life millennials are still have started a family, want the better schools, can afford, and have been used to paying the the type of rent or the rent prices that maybe are are would be associated with this more space further out. But they can't afford the down payment, so this gives them the best of both worlds. They're kind of able to have that home or single family lifestyle, but without having to have that upfront payment. Where I think it's interesting on the master plan community and kind of development side is the other side of it is historically, you haven't wanted renters in for sale communities. I think because these renters tend to be, again, a little bit more senior life in terms of their position, more sophisticated, right? They're they're kind of viewed as good renters Good reason to have them there. And then at the same time, the ownership side or the development side kind of views it as, hey, we'd still want these guys to eventually buy a home if people fall in love with living in these communities within our master plan now. They're just going to end up, when they have the affordability or ability to do so, move you know, down the road in our own community and buy the next house, right? So, again, you kind of own the life cycle of the client a little bit longer, I think, which goes back to what you and I have been talking about in day one with digital marketing and business development, which for me is, you know, how do you make somebody a lifetime client, right? How do you stay in front of them constantly and make sure when they need you, you're there for them? Yeah. How many deals have you looked at on the SFR so side? Invested um, in them yet? I
1: mean, no, not yet. Not yet, but I've, I mean, I've heard it pop up. a few times, I was listening to a podcast a few months ago. I think it was the CEO or the founder of Lululemon. He mentioned that the the way he uh, came up with the company was when he hears an idea for the third time. That's when he knows, or an idea or something for the third time. That's when he knows that he has like there's something there that he needs to be looking at. And for example, uh, back in I don't know if it was the 80s or 90s, he heard the yoga, and I mean some people were doing yoga, and it was when nobody knew about, nobody did yoga. It was a very obscure thing. And when he heard it for the third time, he was like, okay, there's something here that I need to look into. And that's a part of how he started Lululemon. And I feel that way with this, like I'm hearing it like like all around me when something that I had never heard before. And now all of a sudden, I just keep hearing it. So it makes me think that there's an opportunity there. But yeah, I agree. It's the generation that sort of drove the multifamily boom of the last cycle. They're now... Looking at having more space, um, starting a family, still being young. And... Well, and
0: especially that COVID accelerant we talked about, also, mm-hmm. right? If all of a sudden you don't need to necessarily be in, you know, close proximity or urban location for another year or two to your employer, as a lot of the kind of tech companies have now obviously said. Google in particular said up, you know, for the next year you're gonna be remote, figure out your plans. We wanna make it easy for you. You know, it gives people a lot of flexibility to kind of think like, hey, well, we can even do this, you know, for a little bit, right? Or so I think it'll be interesting to see, but it's certainly a trend now. I think you'll hear it a lot more than three times. But I, I like that and I agree. It's you know it's once you car they say it's like you hear it three times, that makes sense. Once you get into a taxi and the taxi driver starts saying hey I just invested in single family rentals, then you probably missed it, right?
1: Exactly. It's the other, that's, that's the other a, side of the bell curve. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a good point. So with that, Josh, what's your just general take on the, the market. I mean, that's something that you and your company specialize in, so I'd sure. certainly like your point of view on that on, on where you see the, the market going forward.
0: Yeah, I'll uh, give my own company a plug here, but you know RCLco has a whole slew of our webinars, again that I mentioned, where we're constantly kind of updating in real time,'re now on a monthly basis with all the new data as it comes in, what we're seeing, what we're still you know, prognosticating where we think things are going. You know, nobody's a crystal ball, so we don't necessarily like to make predictions and just stick to them, but we want to make sure we're providing insights and intel. One of the other things that we do and one of our kind of twice-a-year reports that we do is called our sentiment survey, where we go out to that large database of clients and and folks that we talk to I mentioned, many of whom are kind of in the C-suite or senior leadership roles, and we do a – we poll them on where we think things are and ultimately produce a report – that shows those results and then shows where every sector is on the cycle based on those results. And then historically looks back at where their projections were when we pulled them six months ago or a year ago. So it's interesting to kind of see the change you know, over time and how sentiment changes very quickly. Obviously, this one being pretty significant. I think you're going to, as you imagine, see certain asset classes hurting more than others, right? Hospitality and retail currently the two sectors that I think we're hearing the most about. That doesn't mean that there aren't good deals. It might actually mean there's opportunities. We're seeing a lot of groups coming to us with retail or considering retail and asking us how to think about repositioning it, right? Can we get rid of a box? Can we densify? Can we bring multifamily in? Can we, should we do seniors, you know, self-storage? What does that look like? So those two sectors are obviously hurting for a little while. And and I think I saw either CBRE hotels or one of the groups predict that they didn't expect hospitality to really come back until 2023, 2024. So it certainly takes some time. Industrial, strong, you know, I think everybody knows we feel pretty confident about that still in the long term. And multifamily seems to be holding up fairly well. You know, a lot of our clients are out there setting up distress groups or stress funds or opportunistic funds. And I think they've been surprised or are still anticipating kind of a drop or distress in the market. But most of the collections, at least in class A and class B, from what we've seen, have sort of held. And, you know, Maybe there's been a little bit, maybe no more than 10% kind of discounting the market in that asset class. So again, there's it's not a lot that's transaction-wise seemingly happening. And I think the difference this time around too is you have a lot of groups with, and I hate the slogan, but with dry powder or sitting on the sideline with capital waiting to go, right? And so it's not quite like the last downturn where everyone was was really you know dismantled as much as this time people are waiting and not necessarily seeing it. Uh, what other asset class? Office, you know, That's an interesting one. I think we're still long-term believers of office. Tried to gather a lot of intel to listen to a lot of different sessions. There was a Marcus and Millichap office and a state of the market recently. And they were talking about a huge lease, six-figure kind of square footage type lease that they signed, I forget, in DC or Boston. And they spent months kind of deliberating with the group between what they would need, if they should sign, et cetera. And the group basically, the client or the tenant basically seemed, hey, percent's ultimately going to end up either working from home or having some sort of kind of you know work remotely policy but then for the rest that stay we're going to need some additional space and we're going to need this much more space and so ultimately we're right back where we started and we are going to keep what we had and we'll figure out you know and we'll just change you know layouts right you're not going to have those big open office plans now but um so i just think we're still believers of the urban core and office i'm constantly reminded by folks both, my, both within who I'm working with and others that have gone through it before us. You know, 9 11 is a good example where there were times right after that, everyone said, nobody's ever going to build high rises again. We're never going to go live in cities. And we've had 20 years of urbanization, right? So I think there'll be a pivot. And I think some of those trends that we talked about, like single family build to rent, things like that, certainly are going to accelerate in the short term. But I still am a better believer in long term urban
1: orders. Yeah. Thanks for that overview, Josh. That's a great overview. And and I wanted to uh, point out your comment on there seeming to be a lot of dry powder on the sidelines waiting for deals and opportunities to come up, which haven't done so. That's what we certainly have seen as well. I mean, it may be the case that uh, I've talked to some people who think that once the support from the government runs out and like the influx of, of money is gone that a lot of deals are going to and opportunities are going to come online but nobody knows nobody knows and I and i do exactly see a lot right. of dry powder on the sidelines
0: but i think you're right i think the kind of you know the big uncertainty hanging out there is well it was july 25th or whatever the date was that's now expired that there still hasn't been an extended either stimulus or sort of unemployment piece, right but i think that is the big question, what happens next around collections? Because your point, collections for rent have held very strong kind of through now. And does do we see that dip, right? We've started to see it come down a little bit. Does that dip happen if they don't extend? I have to think the government who have said they're gonna come out and do whatever they can to back will find a way to keep propping this up, which is likely, like you said, gonna extend this a little bit longer. So I don't know if we see a ton of distress, at least in the short term in certain asset classes. I think things like hospitality, you know, you will see people buying distressed hospitality, converting to multifamily. I think that's a great potential solution for a ton of workforce or affordable housing in certain, you know, core cities and CBDs and things like that. So I'm hoping that, and this is one of the things I learned from the design side when I worked at the architectural firms, constraints, if you have great people, can lead to great results, right? And so I'm hoping that some of these difficulties can learn or can turn into, you know, really creative solutions that people can roll out, whether it's to solve housing or to solve whatever it may be. Right. But I'm hoping it spurs some of that new creative thinking that next generation guys like you and I in the whole Twitter world, we were just talking about giving them a voice, the ability to kind of move things forward as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Are you ready, Josh, for our fire round? Sure. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> Let's do it. What book has had the most profound impact on your life?
0: Oh, man. That is not something I was definitely ready for. I read a ton of articles, so I'm not a huge book guy. I just consume every bit of intel and data, but everything from, you know, Bloomberg News, Magazine, Fortune, Inc., Fast Company. I'll have to come back to the book one itself. Sorry. but What's, the, what's the best
1: source of, of the ones that you mentioned, which is your favorite source of information?
0: So you'll laugh. My answer is going to be Twitter, which pulls them all into one convenient place and I can find it all and anywhere I need to go.
1: How do you prevent, I mean, Twitter becoming a like a distraction? Because that can easily happen too, right? Yeah. I mean, you if you're relying on, on Twitter for information and like professional intel, I mean, it may be a little bit risky, at least if you, if you go and if you look at my feed.
0: I have to control it. It's definitely willpower, right? Uh, it's something that I'm not always great at. Try to fill in kind of down moments with it when I'm, uh, you know, and I'm impressed by the way. So I've been on this call for this for this webinar the whole hour and I haven't checked it once, right? Which is pretty pretty unheard of. But yeah, I mean, I think it's also a certain personality type that that looks to do it, right? I like to multitask. I'm, I like to juggle, and but I do have to put it away. More than anything, I'm on there because of my emails. I wish I could, wish I could get off my phone, but my, it feels like the email never stops these days.
1: Mm-hmm. What's the single most important skill to have to be successful in real estate based on your experience and on what you've seen?
0: Yeah, I mean, i use a word we talked about a lot. I think it's authenticity. I mean, I, I think the thing about real estate is you need hustle, you need grind, you need potentially breaks to fall your way, you need maybe a mentor. But at the end of the day, to connect with all of that, I think it's authenticity, whether it's buying property, whether it's working with the city to get approvals, whether it's working with your investors to convince them, hey, it's my first deal. I think just be yourself and you know, recognize, I think in the authenticity also means recognizing, what, knowing what you do and don't know. I'm personally always of the belief that I want to put the best team around me. I want to hope that I'm the least smart guy in the room, right? And I think that's the Jack Welch mentality from GE back in the day. It's again, I read a lot of like bios and books and things. not necessarily one that jumps out, but I like to pick up on these little tidbits But I think the idea is be authentic, realize what you don't know, surround yourself with the right team people, and then delegate and trust those people,
1: ultimately. Uh, That was great. You packed packed (laughs) a lot of great advice in in that response.
0: Way more than one word, I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What's a real estate trend that you're paying attention to?
0: Yeah, I actually think this one's really interesting, but I've been following a lot lately the production studio sector. I think there's a few major players that have done some pretty large acquisitions. Most recently, I believe Blackstone in the last month or so announced a 49% acquisition in Hudson Pacific Properties. Hudson Pacific's been the developer of a lot of production space in Hollywood that Netflix is using. But more generally, what I like about the sector is I think there's pent-up demand. I think you have groups like Netflix alone spending, don't quote me on these numbers, but 13 to $15 billion in content alone this year. And then you have Amazon, Hulu, you know. ESPN Plus, Fubo, Zubo, Pluto, I, you know, there's a may, I, There's so many of these groups and even just smaller scale. I mean, YouTube, the idea of content creation, talk about digital and things moving that way where you're not getting YouTube stars and things. I think, I mean, we're even seeing projects. We've looked at a project in Hollywood where they put like green screen studio spaces and amenity in the building as opposed to your typical gym, right? It still is a gym, but, you know, or putting a sound studio in things that you like appeal to the digital creator, but I just think content there's a lot of money that's piling into content. I think, as a real estate play, it's really interesting to see. The COVID is a really interesting one, as a group like here in LA. Things I'm hearing kind of this reading again and behind the scenes. You know, I used to fly a production crew to New Zealand or Ireland and go film. Well, with COVID, that's tough. So, you're going to film more locally when, when things open up and when you can. So, I think that's going to increase demand even further for studio space and sound stage space here. But that's an interesting niche. You know, a little bit related to entertainment, not quite sports, but I don't know how much. You know, I'd love to say single family build to rent, but I think we've already heard that too many times. So I'll say film production.
1: And then, and, and I appreciate that uh, response. I, that's not a, an answer that I would have expected. I actually had never heard of that as a as a real estate asset class or opportunity. But that's a very interesting. Definitely may be worth looking at.
0: Yeah. I'd say there's probably been to your point. So you heard me talk about it. Now you'll do some digging. There's a big wall street journal article. That's a couple of them in the last couple you know, weeks. And now you'll probably hear somebody else in the next three weeks. That'll be your three. <laughs> and now you'll start looking at those deals also, right? Exactly. Especially exactly. in Austin. I think they do a lot of filming in Austin if I recall.
1: Oh, really? I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. You should look into that. I think I the will. state offers like film credits, but don't quote me.
1: <laughs> I will. Well, Josh, Do you have a a parting piece of advice for our audience? You've already given us a ton, but do you have anything else that, that you'd like to mention?
0: Yeah, I guess I'd just leave it with, don't, especially digitally, don't be scared to reach out. I mean, some of my best connections, and this one is an example, and others have just simply come from sending a direct message, sending a LinkedIn connection, sending an email. You'd be surprised how many people are willing to actually reach out or respond or speak with you. And, you know, if they don't, worst case, it took you, what, five minutes? 30 seconds sometimes, whatever it may be to craft an email and write to somebody. I just say, take your shot. It can't hurt. With that in mind, I'd also say, feel free to reach out to me. I'm always happy to be a resource, both in terms of education, ideally, hopefully a potential lead and a resource to help you with your projects. And definitely give me a follow on Twitter as well. How's that
1: sure and how can people do that what's your twitter handle and what's first. your your email if you'd like yep. to share that so it's
0: at joshua a boren and i'm sure you'll put everyone in my name and everything but mm-hmm. it's my first name my middle initial my last name and then you can also follow not just myself but follow rclco at rclco which has a ton of our publications our research i tend to retweet a lot of that as well Uh, obviously host and moderate a lot of our webinars and things so you'll see some overlap there but as you mentioned my personal the at Joshua a boren has a bit more about me about sports other business things that i think are just interesting and tie into our space and i think the more well rounded we can all be the more we create opportunities and find ways to work together right
1: perfect so people can reach out through twitter and how else can they reach out
0: yeah. Me. Sorry. Link, feel free to get, add me on LinkedIn as well. Joshua A. Boren or via email at J Boren at J B O R E N at RCLCO.com. So J Boren at dot O.com.
1: Excellent. And that's if, if they need anything from you or also, if they need anything from RCL right, or any of those, the services that exactly. you mentioned earlier.
0: Yeah. I would love to just feel free to reach out to even just to ask more about our services and, You know, whether it's a market research question or strategic growth question or capital markets question, but happy to help where we can.
1: How can we access the information, the surveys that you mentioned earlier? Yep.
0: All online, go to the rclco.com website. And then I believe they're typically always rotating kind of the newest material up up front, but there's a publications tab. So if you go to rclco.com and click publications, you'll see all of our research there. There's sub tabs there for things like the master plan, community reports, the sentiment surveys. We also have an entirely separate COVID-19 resource section on the website as well. And that refers to some of the things we've been talking about, like the webinars and more of the kind of, you know, more frequent publications around COVID impacts on real estate.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Josh, for everything. uh, It's a, a lot of great information and a lot of fun stuff as well. I really enjoyed having you today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much
0: yeah i really appreciate it thanks so much for having me on I, I hope your audience found it interesting and uh you know i guess i'll be rooting against or for monterey
1: now right <laughs> uh yeah exactly <laughs> exactly the, one, gonna, yeah. the yellow one you, you need yeah, the know. yellow one. all <laughs> well, right like josh thank, thank you so you. much you.
0: Bye-bye. Bye, bye bye